This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We have certainly heard plenty of uh, about uh, the Amazon bid in Hamilton and, of course, uh, pretty much all the way across the country. Uh, I think they said there were something like 100 cities that were going to bid uh, for the second quarter, uh, second headquarters of uh, Amazon and everybody putting their best foot forward. Uh, lots are saying this is a, uh, a shot in the dark. That being said, as, as the mayor has said, and, and Bill Kelly was talking about it earlier today as well. Uh, putting a presentation like this together, uh, getting on this uh, map per se, uh, certainly puts us forth uh, for other business opportunity as well. So it's just not sort of uh, a, you know a one swing deal here. Uh, there's a process here that could help us uh, in other spinoff ways as well. Uh, that being said, there's been lots of chatter about what will happen if Amazon does move into your city. How does it change the hammer? How would it change Toronto? How would it change Vancouver? How would it change any other city in Canada if it decides to come here? And will it even come here? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Emily Salisbury is with us, Executive Director, School of Retailing, University of Alberta, and is with us now. Emily, thank you for taking the time to uh, join us today. We appreciate this. Of course. I was glad it wasn't Sears. <laughs> oh, my. There just is nothing good there, is there? Oh, I just think it's... I, I get about 10 phone calls a day to talk about Sears, and I think... I think all has been said. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's been a slow death, hasn't it? It has, yeah. yeah. It has, but it's unfortunate that we all had to watch it so closely. Hmm. All right, let's move on. Uh, Amazon, it seems that every city in Canada, every city, I guess, in North America is trying for this uh, second headquarters. Uh, people are putting, like, this would be the second coming of Christ. I mean, is uh, is this uh, everything that it's, it's, it's uh, decked out to be? How big an opportunity would this be for any city that gets it? I mean, absolutely, there's no argument that this is, I mean, it hugely, hugely changed Seattle and contributed to massive economic growth uh, in the city. So I think they have something like 8.5 million square feet that they fill full of, you know, their stuff and people. So it has a huge, huge economic impact and an economic impact that you really have to make sure that you understand full scale, uh, whether it's housing, uh, tech, you know, skilled workforce, and logistical planning. You have to be a city that can offer all of those. So is there a downside, or do you just have to be well-planned for this? Well, the downside is that most cities are not going to be ideal for this. Uh, most cities, like the first thing that they're going to look for is the skilled workforce. And if you don't have a skilled workforce, you better have a place that people want to move to. Mm-hmm. So even if even if Seattle didn't necessarily have the right workforce when it comes to logistics, supply chain, and technical help, uh, it's a, Seattle's a place where people would want to move to. So it can create uh, a really good collaboration between the city, Amazon. How are we going to make this work? But if you're if you're a city that isn't really all that desirable to move to, which isn't just about the weather, there's a lot of factors involved: uh, housing prices. Um, how your transportation is built, there's so much that goes into it. You're really wasting your time on trying to attract this big mega um, mega company. Uh, how did Seattle manage this? How did they do it? Well, Seattle is where the founder, I mean, the founder of Amazon is from Seattle, and he, even in August 24th, 2017, he was quoted in an article saying that he wants to keep the growth of Amazon in Seattle, Mm-hmm. Uh, he was quoted saying that you never know. This could be a bait trick for Seattle. Maybe sure. 
maybe they were at a growing point where Seattle wasn't really able or willing to budge on certain components, whether that's space or taxes or whatever that might be. And Amazon said, okay, well, watch, watch what happens when we say jump and everybody comes to the table with a bid. And this right. goes to show Seattle just how much everybody wants Amazon and the overall impact of not having that in Seattle. So it could just be uh, a marketing ploy. Is point. there an advantage for Seattle to have another headquarters that's geographically at the other side of the country or, or in another country as opposed to just expanding in Seattle? Uh, I would say it doesn't. I mean, it, Canada and the U.S. are completely contrasting countries. So... The differences that come with working in Canada and U.S. are so dramatic that I, I'm, I'm a bit worried that we can't compete with the deals that the U.S. can make when it comes to corporate. Uh, we have a little bit of a more structured system where if you're a certain size of company, you pay what you pay. It's not a negotiation. Um, that's how that's how Trump rise to fame in the early in the early um, like in 1960 when they were going through all their things. And he came to the table and started changing the regime for taxes and corporates. And it made it really attractive for business growth and attractive for economic growth with business in the U.S. But we don't have that same kind of bargaining structure here. Uh, that being said, it's certainly no secret that uh, Amazon and Trump aren't necessarily best of friends. Is he perhaps looking for, uh, you know, to move outside of the country? What do you think Canadian cities' chances are? I mean, I've heard just, you know, simply through immigration laws alone are, are, are a big advantage. I mean, the first, if I were Amazon, the first place I'm going to look is where am I going to get the, where am I going to cast the widest net? So where am I going to find the most people that are within this qualified category in Canada? And that really cuts out pretty much 75% of the bids. And so they're, cause they're not going to want to import half of their team. Uh, it's a lot easier for Hudson's Bay to buy Lord and Taylor and establish a New York head office for Hudson's Bay because they bought Lord and Taylor. So it's not as if Amazon is acquiring a Canadian company and they can kind of merge the two companies. It's really it's building this in Canada would be very difficult. And uh, I think, although it would be amazing, uh, we have to really look at our population versus theirs, our geographical spread versus theirs. Our shipping systems are nowhere near the capabilities of what the U.S. systems are right now. And so we really have a lot of things that are holding us back, but maybe it shows um, a lot of our country what we need, where we need to get to so that we can compete on this large landscape. Hmm. Uh, out of Canadian areas or cities, who do you think is the best poised to, to make a good bid? Well, anybody who has a really robust airport and you're close to land or close to water. Right, so, so that's southern Ontario. You have to have, I mean, everyone says, well, we're close to the port. And, I mean, this is Amazon. They're using airplanes. Right. So you have to really consider what is your airport, what are your import-export uh, relationships, what is your ability to do um, this type of infrastructure. So my immediate thought is always going to be the larger cities, but at the same time, uh, it's really challenging to just pump in 8.5 million square feet of office space and logistics in down in Toronto. So I think we have a lot of challenges, but we also have a lot of opportunity in I think it's what you said in the beginning of the segment is right. Doing something like this is a really, really strong and um, really important activity for each city to do. So even though our hands were forced and kind of everybody wanted to be included, this really very quickly, it was a very fast turnaround time, 
what, what, who are you and what do you have on the table? And so now everybody can kind of go once they've made their decision and say, okay, well, if we ever want to attract something like that, well, maybe these are the three steps or the six steps that we need to take. So this is a good exercise, Emily, because some have Absolutely. said, you know what, just because, you know, some have said there's no way in hell we're going to get this. So why even bother wasting the money to do it? And that's what's happening in this city. Um, but obviously, economic development and such uh, thinks this is a good uh, exercise. And not only that, if it does fall in another center, there still may be supporting roles here. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's one of the hardest things when you live in a, a bureaucratic city or province and you have a very short amount of time to figure out who you are, what's your value proposition, what are your capabilities, and it means that a ton of different stakeholders have to come together and decide on very short notice, what do we know about ourselves, what are we good at, and how can we support this? And so all of a sudden, you've developed this entire plan without even thinking about it, and you go, now we have this whole plan where we can go out and attract something like this, because we know we have the capabilities. Uh, I think it's a fantastic exercise. And also, uh, Amazon's at a different phase now by expansion, being in the expansion phase, than they were in the startup phase when they first went into in, into Seattle. Uh, that being said, uh, why would they not just, do you think, want to take the same approach that, that, that they took with Seattle and rather than you know trying to fit somewhere else, pick a smaller center and then grow into it? Uh, well, I think it, it, they're really going to have a complex decision to make. It's not going to. It's not going to be so easy for them to yeah. just pick another city and build an entire. I, 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 I think ideally they'd want to continue to grow in Seattle, but they've outgrown themselves in terms of what they can do with the limits of the actual city itself. And so, without a commitment of building, you know, fifty fifty thousand more, you know, reasonable priced houses or this type of, you know, demand, they, they can't keep it there. And so to build another, to build another hub would make sense if it were me. It's very normal that people have offices in Toronto and Vancouver, just like they have offices in New York and L.A., so you have an office on one side of the country right. and you're going to want one on the other side of the country. Yeah, it kind of makes so, sense. So yeah. give us an idea, Emily, if this does come to any city, how does it change things? How does it, uh, and would it, would, it, would it change a larger center as much as it would, say, a medium-sized city or is it still a very significant change? It's significant in, in, in every way. Like it's significant in transportation, it's significant I mean, 50,000 people, you're looking at, if you don't have a robust transit system, you're looking at a lot of cars on the road. Um, so you have to make sure that there's a really robust transit system. And even so, adding, you know, 20,000 people to transit is huge. The biggest, held, the biggest holdup for anybody is the technical workforce. You have to have a really good e-commerce, technically trained workforce. This is not administrative work. This is very complex and it's very demanding, but it makes total sense, and it would be a huge economic impact on wherever it went, even if it, if it was Toronto. Toronto's doing some crazy things with Google. Uh, I know that hasn't been talked about a lot, but Google wants to build like a micro city in Toronto yeah. where it's all smart, and that's absolutely uh, amazing and so thrilled that they've picked Toronto for that. And so it has a huge economic impact, um, but... For major centers, it's you know it's 
it still has a huge impact, like wherever you Is go. there a downfall to this? I mean, other than being ready for it, obviously, uh, and this isn't going to happen overnight, but there obviously have to, you know, have to be plans in place. You have to start working towards this. Mm-hmm. Are, are there negatives to too much growth too quickly like this? Well, I think consumers really have to decide if, if you if you're ready for Amazon to take over the world, then that's fine. Shop with Amazon and, you know, you can perpetuate that and, and they will ultimately uh, take over commerce and take over most businesses. And, uh, and that's that doesn't fine. sound very positive or is it? I think it's, you know, I've always remained, uh, I have my own decisions that I make as a consumer, but I think people and consumers dictate the growth of companies. And so it's really up to consumers to make that decision if they want to see Amazon grow and continue to take over what they are and continue to be in so many different spaces. But also Amazon... At the end of the day, isn't it about getting a product for a good price? I don't think... I don't... Maybe it is. I Not for me particularly. I'm, I would rather have it like that day or I'm more of an impulse buyer, I guess. Right. But Amazon still hasn't made money. Like, let's make sure we keep that on there. Amazon still hasn't made a profit. <laughs> so they're still a building company. They're still building, spending, um, spending crazy amounts of money, hoping that with buying power and information and everything that they're building, that ultimately at the end of the day, that that's going to turn into profit. But right now they're not currently making money. Could this go south? You know, you never know in retail. You never know anything. It's a really interesting time to watch retail and see how everything goes. Um, we've seen companies bust before. We're seeing, you know, 65-year-old companies bust now. So it's nobody can tell. Like it's really going to be, uh, it's really going to be how it's managed if they're meeting consumer demand and you know staying true to their promises. So. It's really time will tell. Uh, one more question, a little off topic, Emily, but not really. Um, lots of chatter lately about automation, especially today. Studies out saying that uh, you know if if we're not prepared for this, uh, the outcome may not be as positive as we think, and we have to do a lot to balance uh, our education moving into this era. What are your thoughts? You know, Elon Musk says that AI is kind of like with the devil <laughs> it's a little bit uh, everybody wants to do it and everybody's competing to be in it it's not necessarily something we need to push so fast but it is coming uh, you know the the uh, level of automation and how simple it is to incorporate into your business now so it is happening it's going to happen and uh, you know in 20 years this is going to be a very strange planet Emily Salisbury is Executive Director, School of Retail, University of Alberta. Emily, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, yesterday in, car, in court, Ontario's former top public servant was accused of covering himself by sending an email warning to the Premier's office not to destroy government documents. The documents in question were the ones leaked to the cancellation of two fired, uh, two gas-fired electric plants. To talk more about this, Peter Grave is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, and on the line now. Peter, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So, uh, has this been as mesmerizing as everybody thought it would be? Uh, probably not. <laughs> I mean, uh, again, if this, uh, uh, if we had had this two years ago or three years ago, when uh, there was a real uh, you know, when we were being scandalized by it, probably uh, people would have been following it closely because, uh, you know, it's 
again, we have to see what the other witnesses have to say, but certainly the former cabinet secretary, Peter Wallace, who's been there the past three days, has made it very clear that uh, there was, uh, in his eyes anyways, a pretty clear move to uh, deny access to documents and going to the point of uh, deleting them and trying to find ways of making them disappear. So if that holds up as a conclusion, it is a pretty damning indictment of a government that was acting in a manner uh, quite opposed to uh, the expected uh, treatment of records and trying to hide things from a parliamentary committee and ultimately from Ontarians. So, you know, the, 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 the material is damning. It may be that as Ontarians we've already figured out that that's probably what happened and so we may not be scandalized by it now. Uh, Peter Wallace accused of covering his own rear end. Is that fair? Well, I guess we'll see what the other uh, witnesses say. I think he came up with a fairly uh, credible answer. I mean, he noted the ver- variety of different ways that he communicated uh, with the Dalton McGuinty's chief of staff, David Livingston, to remind him at various stages of his responsibility not to be deleting emails, you know, including a couple of times in writing. It didn't seem to be after the fact and or just trying to avoid... Uh, that question. I mean, I think the biggest question that could be asked of him at this point is why he didn't communicate directly with the Premier if he felt that the Premier's right-hand man was up to potentially nefarious activities. And so maybe that will be the strand on which uh, the defense comes to rest, that maybe Peter Wallace, in fact, is trying to uh, uh, augment the extent to which he saw this as a problem. But uh, in his uh, testimony over the past three days, you know, the former uh, Cabinet Secretary Wallace, I think, has been uh, very clear uh, about the steps he took and uh, in a manner that would be pretty uh, straightforward to verify if he was telling the truth. So uh, I think it will be a difficult case for Livingston and Miller to sort of put the, the blame on Peter Wallace as somehow having not told them that they weren't allowed to permanently delete emails. Uh, I mean, even that is a bit of a thin read because you'd expect people in those positions. Yeah, I mean, uh, come on, is, is anybody buying that, Peter? Well, I guess that's their best argument. <laughs> So, so, I mean, we'll see what arguments they come up when they have to defend themselves. Uh, I mean, if that's their best argument, maybe it won't go so for, well for them in the second half of the of the trial that, uh, you know, that they weren't uh, sufficiently reminded that they weren't meant to permanently delete records. Uh, when you become a politician, don't you go through the do's and don'ts of what you can and can't do? I mean, this seems like basic ethics. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, uh, and I mean, that was one aspect of the testimony of, of uh, Peter Wallace's testimony was that the parliamentary committee was asking for documents related to the gas plants. The permanent bureaucracy was doing its job and was identifying all kinds of relevant documents and sending them forward. Uh, the problem was that the minister's office uh, claimed not to have any, even though, you know, these uh, documents being sent forward by the bureaucracy were presumably prepared to brief the minister and the people in the ministry. So, uh, from you know, Wallace's point of view, he had this issue where if he had the documents on one side and not the other, it was pretty clear that they had been disappeared or that the ministry was refusing to cooperate. And uh, you know, that's, I think, what really tipped him off that something was going wrong here. So, I mean, yeah, there was obvious bad dealing on the part of the Liberal government and, and some evidence, in fact, that the cabinet itself was talking about how potentially damaging releasing this information was and what were the ways that they could go to try and hide it from the uh, Ontario population. So uh, certainly, I'm not sure if Ontarians are following this closely, but uh, the future biographers of Dalton McGuinty and his government mm. uh, will have to, uh, you know, presumably uh, will have to come to some pretty hard conclusions about, uh, yeah, the sense of ethics in that in that government. I mean, already it was revealed that when Dalton McGuinty said that there were no documents because they did everything uh, orally, 
um, you know, that that's not true, that there were a lot of documents that were there. And as, as Peter Wallace pointed out, the only organizations that act solely on this sort of oral aspect are organized crime. <laughs> yeah, that's a little damning, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, again, if this was in the heat of the moment, there would be plenty of good uh, material here, I think, to, to stoke uh, you know, public outrage and, you know, good questions in the House. But uh, I think Ontario has moved on a bit uh, in the sense that I think a lot of Ontarians already knew that the Liberal government acted in a manner that was self-interested around these gas plants, that it cost them a billion dollars, and that they tried to cover it up afterwards. So, uh, you know, I guess it's a bit like someone noted that to claim that politicians lie isn't actually that effective a critique, because the citizens already know that mm. <laughs> at a certain level and have priced it into their evaluation of, you know, well, you know how untruthful or truthful uh, are these politicians. I mean, in some ways it's almost uh, satire. Yeah. I'd get all upset about that. Uh, that being said, it still is in the energy file. You look what happened just the other day with the Auditor General's report coming out and, and revealing the true cost of refinancing the Green Energy Act. And then, of course, the creative accounting that seems to be going on, uh, making a loss look like an asset. Um, d- does, this just, does, this, d- does this just confirm the narrative here? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I guess the question is, how important is that narrative going to be? Uh, in, in the it seems to election? me, it, it seems to me, it's become so important that people don't care anymore. They just they've seen enough proof. They're just waiting for election day, yeah. or or are they going to forget about all this? Well, I guess the question is, are they going to make this uh, why they vote or don't vote for the government or for an opposition party in the next uh, campaign? I've got people saying to me in this station, it doesn't matter what you're talking about here, Scott, the Liberals are going to form the next government because the Ontarians will not boot them out and put the Conservatives in. Do you think that's valid? Well, I think the polls we've been seeing haven't been pointing right in that direction. I mean, I think this is really Patrick Brown's election to lose or potentially Andrea Horvath's to win. Um, but if, you know, uh, Andrea Horvath is unable to win it and, and Patrick Brown, uh, you know, somehow blows it up, yeah, I mean, the, I think the Liberals have, uh, they don't have the support in the polls at the moment. Uh, there's a lot of people who are unhappy with them, but on the other hand, a kind of grudging sense that maybe, uh, you know, they've kind of done some things that are okay and I can get on with my life without having to worry about politics and uh I mean, I think that's uh, a situation where I think Andrea Horvath is trying to uh, take on that mantle. <laughs> you know, you can have a government that's not going to upset the apple cart. And I think Patrick Brown, likewise, is trying to find a way where he can say, well, forget what the Conservative Party's run on the past couple of elections. If you vote us, it will be continuity. But, you know, again, with a fresh set of hands that are maybe less ready uh, to just use the public treasury for the, their, solving their own problems on a day-to-day basis. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the Liberals uh, are not to be counted out, and I think that's a question. If this election really becomes about mismanagement or sleazy ethics, uh, a government that's been there for 14 years doesn't have a chance, you know, regardless of the government, and maybe particularly this one. Uh, but if it becomes an election about other things, like can you trust the opposition parties, or uh, do we really want that big a change, uh, or you know, can we think of things that uh, have gone well in the past 14 years, and can we do more of them? Uh, then the Liberals, I think, will have a, a shot at uh, forming government. Uh, does a Liberal success depend on the others making a mistake? Uh, well, yes, I think so. I mean, yeah. it depends what we mean by a mistake. I mm-hmm. mean, it may not be a mistake in the sense that someone gets up and says that they, you know, that they eat live children or something for <laughs> breakfast, right? I mean, it may be more a mistake in strategy in the longer run. If, uh, you know, for instance, if uh, Patrick Brown is unable to... Uh, 
deal with these internal controversies in his party. And as Ontarians pay more uh, attention, they begin to say, well, if he can't run his own, uh, and if he can't run his own pop stand, how can he run the province? Uh, you know, that will be a problem. I mean, I think similarly, Andrea Horvath uh, is popular personally, but seems to have a hard time really indicating what she's about in a deeper sense. What would she do if she was premier? And so if she's unable to, to kind of focus that, well, I think that will be the, the problem that will sink her. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of, uh, it will take a failure of one of the opposition parties to bring back the, the Liberals, but it may not be a kind of a huge uh, mistake on the election trail, but more an inability in the next six months to really define what they're about, and in a way that would be uh, interesting and pleasing to Ontarians. Uh, Andrew Scheer was on, uh, leader of uh, uh, the Conservative Party opposition, was on with Bill Kelly this morning and actually took a swipe at uh, Kathleen Wynne Liberal saying, you know, talking about their mismanagement of Ontario's money. Uh, can uh, Yagmeet, Jagmeet Singh beat, or, or sorry, help uh, Andrea Horbath in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what Jagmeet Singh can do is uh, parlay a certain degree of popularity, but also organization that he had during his campaign uh, in the suburbs of Toronto, where the Ontario NDP has very little uh, of a ground game. Uh, and to take people who may have never really thought of the NDP as an alternative to the, to the Liberals or the Conservatives and, and to give them a shot in some of those ridings. So, in a sense, his, his potential contribution is a bit different. I mean, Andrew Scheer is, I think, repeating the same problem that John Baird and uh, uh, Joe Oliver and company had, which was uh, trying to intervene in Ontario politics. And I think as much as it maybe uh, sort of stoked the base of the Conservative Party, I think it turned off a number of other Ontarians who said, well, wait a second, you've got your own problems federally, you deal with those, we'll have the debate here. So uh, it's a bit odd in a way that Andrew Scheer is going that way rather than trying to find some way uh, to appeal to Ontario voters and say, well, you know, there's a, there's a point in being conservative. I think if Jagmeet Singh is going to have a, a, a positive influence for the Ontario New Democrats, it's going to be more at the level of trying to to make a case for why Andrea Horvath is the same as him, that they represent the same tendency. And so they might uh, there might be an interest in looking uh, at the NDP in places where people haven't uh, traditionally voted for them over at least the past 30 or 35 years. I uh, can't let you go, Peter, without getting your comments on what is happening in Quebec and uh, their uh, recent changes in policy uh, now uh, appearing to target Muslim women who wear the niqab or the burqa, saying that uh, if anybody is using public service in any way, that uh, they can't be wearing uh, facial coverings in, ever, in any way. Uh, the Ontario government, uh, Premier Wynne's government, uh, obviously coming out and speaking against this. Uh, what are your thoughts? Where's this going? Uh, I think it's probably going to end up in a bad spot. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's a problem. Haven't we, learn, haven't we learned from this? Can't we move on? Uh, well, we would hope, I guess. Uh, I mean, I think there's a way in which uh, the law is presented in a its sort of most egregious forms when we're talking about it outside of Quebec in terms of what it actually involves. I think it's more saying that there may be certain specific occasions where people are being served by the public service where they may be required I mean, that's still a problematic decision, but it's a bit less sweeping than uh, some of the news reports let us have. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we're in a, a period where we have very different understandings of secularism uh, in this country in terms of what it involves. Does it mean a kind of anti-religion, an absence of any kind of religious symbol in the public sphere? Or does it mean that people can practice different religions, uh, you know, and they shouldn't be doing that in terms of, uh, you know, public sector jobs, but outside of that, you know, how they choose to dress and so forth is up to them. I think that's, you know, at the base of uh, of a lot of this uh, discussion. But, I mean, also behind that is sort of a uh, greater kind of Islamophobia that we've seen 
across the West, which is maybe a bit more openly debated and accepted in some quarters in Quebec. So, you know, we have those two things going on at the same time to to sort of make it difficult. Some of it is, in fact, a debate about secularism and how we think about secularism. Uh, some other aspects have to do, I think, with a more open Islamophobia. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I suspect, in fact, if we did polls in Ontario, uh, this bill, you know, wouldn't get the sort of 80 or 85 percent support it's got in the polls in Quebec, but we might see a much sort of stronger support for it than the idea that somehow Ontarians are fully opposed to it. It just seems odd that they're using the secular argument to, to justify this when there's a cross hanging in the National Assembly. But we got to end the discussion there, Peter. Peter Grip, political science professor, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We are continuing with Hotspot Hamilton. This is a series that Bill Kelly and myself have been running every Tuesday and Thursday. And it talks about uh, what has made this ham- uh, this city great again and some of the hotspots that are drawing interest. And, of course, uh, how we continue and cope with a city that uh, is uh, now moving forward, growing, finally turning the corner, as they say. Uh, to talk about health and safety and harm reduction in this city uh, and, of course, uh, as it grows how that will be managed. Debbie Bang is with us, manager at Womankind Addiction Service, Men's Addiction Service Hamilton, and the Eating Disorder Program at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton as well. Thank you very much for uh, coming in, Debbie. We greatly appreciate this. Well, thank you for having me, Scott. So uh, give us a bit of a, a, an overview uh, about Womankind Addiction and uh, Men's Addiction Services Hamilton. What are your role? What's your objective here? What are you trying to do? So we are a location for people who have been using substances. For We're very fortunate in Hamilton to have gender services. That's not the usual mm-hmm. in the province. So if I have a substance use issue, I would like some help with that. Uh, I can go to withdrawal management at Womankind. I can attend some groups. I can go on to treatment. I can attend aftercare. I can get some help with supportive housing. And uh, I can go to a book club. I can attend some self-help meetings. If I'm a man and I have trouble with substances, I can go to Men's Addiction Service Hamilton, which we fondly call MASH. Yeah. And I can do, again, that same, I can get some assistance with my withdrawal. I can go to day programming. I can continue with some groups, some book clubs, um, or sorry, some uh, writing group, as well as some self-esteem groups, which will assist me to think about how I, how I might change my substance use. Advantage of having gender-specific uh, services like this. So that's the uh, <coughs> that's a really important piece, and we're very fortunate in Hamilton to have those gender-specific services. The reality is that there's complications and reasons why people use substances in the first place. Sometimes they're a maladaptive coping strategy, and often the the trauma related to their substance use is at the hands of one of the other genders. Mm. So it's very mm. useful to be able to have that Good programming point. without that same gender and to be able to work on those issues uh, for you. We hear so much about uh, and have waited a long time for this city to get to the point where it is uh, seeing the growth and rejuvenation, uh, renaissance, if you will. Uh, How does that change your challenges? How does it change uh, uh, your approach to the city? Uh, We've often said that Hamilton is a city but a small town feel, but it still has big city problems, doesn't it? It does have big city problems, and currently our, our biggest issue And our biggest issue compared to some other places in Ontario is around opioid and opioid use and the the poisonings that are occurring as a result of that. Um, There were 54 people that we lost last year, and that's not okay. Uh, That is highly preventable in many cases. So we have the the draw of... um, 
on the market for, for substances, and we have the, the caring of a community. So Womankind and MASH are both uh, very well supported and very well used, very well respected in the province. But each time Hamilton grows, the surrounding area is also growing, and we have a very large catchment of mm, people. Mm, Results good. in no beds. We, we can't have people come to our services because we don't have a bed to put them in. Where does Hamilton fit into the national or even provincial picture in regard to opioid use? So uh, nationally, the movement has been from the east or the west coast yeah. across. Uh, Ontario is not quite as as pervasive in terms of the substance use as BC is. Mm-hmm. Alberta is uh, closely behind that, but Ontario would be would be third along those lines. And in Ontario, Hamilton is one of the hotspots in terms of opiate use. It's it's interesting to posture why that might be. Why you know? is that? Do you think? And, and I'm I don't have the answers to all of that. I I'm not uh, I'm not doing the the analysis of that piece. But it strikes me that there has to be a market in order for that to be able to occur. Mm-hmm. And the other factor I think that might play into this is we draw people from areas around us who then potentially stay. And not always are people successful when they're trying to stop using substances on their first time, which means they may reconnect with a, a substance provider. When you're specifically talking about opioids, how does this problem originate? Is it originating mm-hmm. from street drugs? Is it originating from people who've had injury and prescription or surgery or what have you and prescription and then it, it gets out of hand? How, how, how all, does this start? All of those, Scott. And so many people... I mean, we're an industri- we were an industrial city. With mm-hmm. industrial cities, th- it's hard on workers. It's hard physically, on... Physically yeah. hard, um, injury, this sort of thing. I mean, does that lend into this at all? I mean, you know, if there's people being injured and, and, and sore at work, they're going to be prescribed these things, no? I mean, so, is there so any correlation between our industrial core? Well, and yes, there could be. So we, we often think about... I guess in history... Yeah, we often think about the innocent initiation to using substances. For many, many years, doctors were highly encouraged to prescribe uh, a variety of different opiates, including Tylenol 3s and Tylenol 2s. And I'm not willing to let Big Pharma Pharma off uh, Mm. the hook on any of this, because this is a self-inflicted problem, isn't it? Well, it depends who we're talking about is self-inflicted. So the person... The increased use in opioids. I mean, they've always been there. These are drugs that have been around for a long time. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the newer things that have been created, uh, OxyContin and stuff. But I mean, this was marketed as a clean drug and it was anything but. Yeah. Where's the responsibility there? Well, I think we do need to hold them accountable for, for that marketing that they did that was false. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, we have a person at the other end of that yeah. who now has... Um, a resistance and a dependence on that particular substance, and it's not an easy uh, withdrawal when you stop using it. Talk about this. Talk about how uh, how this consumes you. So with people who are using opioids, typically the reasons are related to some sort of pain. Mm-hmm. Pain is perceived, and it can be both a physical and a mental pain. Right, yeah. And when people perceive themselves to be in pain, they often go to their family physician, and that takes up a great deal of a family physician's time, is I have pain, and I'd like you to help me with something so I can stop that pain. It may work temporarily, and often does work temporarily, and then I'm in a situation where whatever was causing that pain may not be finished, mm-hmm. or I may have some trauma in the background, and I'm appreciating the experience I'm having by using that medication. So I would like to get it again. So I might be able to get it from my physician, but eventually that may not be a source that I can get any longer, mm-hmm. and or it's not enough. 
Mm-hmm. And then I start to experience physical dependence, and it's a very unpleasant withdrawal. The, uh, if we think about our, our very worst flu we've ever had, and we make that seven to ten times even worse mm-hmm. in our imagination, and we drag it out for three to seven to ten days. How long does it take for a user to get to that point where withdrawal is, um, is that difficult? Depends on what they're using. Yeah. So if I'm using a long-acting opioid, I've got more time. Mm-hmm. If I'm using an opioid that I take every four hours or every six hours, right. I have a shorter amount of time. Right. Makes sense. Uh, this is more than just prescribing drugs, isn't it? There's, there, there's, there's got to be more to this. There has to be uh, psychological uh, um, um, education as well. You just can't keep prescribing things to people for pain if you don't know how the pain's originating. That's right. And and so we need to understand where the pain is coming from and investigate those. And that's what healthcare does. You know, we do do a variety of different tests. We look at what the problem is. One of the things we know that we have good outcomes with are things like pain clinics Mm -hmm. that assist people to perceive their pain differently, to do other pieces that will help to to deal with the pain, uh, distraction, exercise, strengthening muscles, all of those kind of components, working through some of those past issues that are causing me some difficulty. The reality is, is there's probably not enough pain clinics and we have an aging population. Mm. Most of us increase uh, feelings of pain as we get older, yeah. uh, whether or not it's weekend athlete stuff uh-huh, or yep. something along exactly. those lines. Or just sitting here. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seems that, you know, how successful can those be? Um, because it seems like people always want an easy out. And rather than doing the hard work and figuring out what's causing this pain, just help me with the pain. How do you get past that? Yeah. And again, that, that's we, we know that what makes a difference for people is, is building relationships mm-hmm. and meaningful relationships, whether that's with family, healthcare provider, an addiction service like ours, uh, self-help community, uh, activities that you're involved in that give you meaningful experiences. For some people, it might be collecting and, and, uh, and uh, driving trains. It might be a, an old car. It might be a physical activity like a, like a hockey game or a ringette game or... Tai Chi or something like that, meditation, mindfulness, yoga. So it's finding that thing that also gives me some pleasure and allowing that to be a part of my life and to experience that and know that I'm probably not going to have the pain at the same time and being able to substitute this activity with with uh, my, my thinking about pain. Why didn't we do that first? Why aren't we doing that before we prescribe? I think probably people are. Mm-hmm. I think they're, they're trying so to do... More so now, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I think they don't always say, aha, I had 15 minutes without pain. Why was that? Hmm. I don't think we always reflect on that. And that would be useful for us to do. Uh, I know that uh, people in hospital uh, recently experienced a story where a, a young child was brought in, and, and you know the father is in, in, in a very difficult situation, You know, some tumors growing and cancer and, and pain, and he was a very different person while that young young child mm. that grandchild was there mm. and, but did he take the time to reflect and say ah i had some time without pain because i was thinking in a different way right interesting uh you talked about the prevalence on the west coast and how it seems to be moving across the country is it just a matter of time before we hear we hear have the same horrific issues that are happening it seems in vancouver and places like that 
my, my best guess, and I don't have a crystal ball, but my best guess is we have a chance of that not happening. Yeah. And the reason we have a chance of that not happening is because we've been able to watch what's occurring on the West Coast and be able to plan. We have a number of uh, standards around opioid use that are coming out. Uh, there's The national ones are out already from McMaster. We have three other standards on acute pain and chronic pain as well as opioid use, which will have been out for discussion and will be available uh, End of, end of this year, beginning of next year, we have an active uh, mayor's clinic, uh, sorry, mayor's committee here mm-hmm. in Hamilton that is looking at opioids and how they're being used, making those connections between agencies, including EMS and police and hospital and shelters and withdrawal management services to try to find a better way of managing this. We've opened up some new pain clinics across the province and one of those is what do pain clinics do elaborate on that so it's a multidisciplinary team and the purpose is to help people to identify what's causing the pain and what might be some alternatives to dealing with that besides medication Mm -hmm. and some of that there's there's all kinds of different strategies that you can use it's quite individualized but more importantly it's learning how to manage that pain to think about it in a different way and to be able to cope as best as i can uh, without without using high doses of uh, of opioids, is how difficult is that when the easy out for them is just to take a pill, uh, and as you mentioned, withdrawal is 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 extremely difficult, um, and yet you brought up you know someone coming in, a child coming in, taking someone's mind off the pain for fifteen minutes. How do they not fall back into those old regimes? Yeah, and, and that's very easy to do. The problem is is we we build a resistance to that medication, so we need more yeah. of it. And the more that we are stationary, the more that our body doesn't respond in a in a healthy yeah. way. So it, it is that circle of trying to get up. One of the things we know about arthritis, for instance, is the more active you are, the and it less used to, And it used to be the pain. opposite. Mm-hmm. It used to be, yeah, it'll sit there and rest. No, it's get out there and move. Yeah. Uh, talk about success rates, because whenever we talk about opio- opioid use, uh, usually it's in tragic scenarios, uh, terrible stories on the news, this sort of thing. Are there success stories? Can mm-hmm. you turn this around? How difficult is it? It, it actually, uh, many, many people turn this around. Uh, and in, the th- in September this year, we had the annual Recovery Awareness Day where we celebrate people in recovery mm-hmm. and people share those stories with one another. It was a lovely event at Pier 4 this year outside. The mayor was there. And it is one of those ways of, of acknowledging that that does occur. Sometimes we don't stop and think about how many people have been successful as opposed to We hear more of the bad stories than we do the good. And how many are waiting to come in. Yeah. So one of the things we do know is that people are very, very capable of making this change. It's believing in myself. It's mm-hmm. believing that it's possible, and then it's helping. And that's that's in part family. It's in part community. It's in part health agencies to assist people to get to the programming that they need. That's going to make them possible for them to be successful. Do we ever fully recover from this? Well, I, I think that's a really good question. To ask somebody who who has been in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do you ever really recover from from breaking a toe or breaking a bone? Mm. It may always be a part of your life, right? But it doesn't mean it dominates. Yeah, it doesn't have the control. Happening. Yeah. Uh, are you? Do you feel positive as the city moves forward with this growth spurt that it's going through, or do you see more of these issues cropping up as it? You know, as as Hamilton grows, will it become Vancouver? Mm. I I really believe that that Hamilton is an outstanding place to live, 
and to play and to be a part of. And we have amazing resources here, plus a beautiful, beautiful waterfront to, mm-hmm. to enjoy each and every day. So I think that as, as people begin to have a chance to appreciate that, the waterfalls, the walking, uh, how gorgeous it is up on the mountain to look at the leaves, that there is a hope that, that people will be able to think in that way as opposed to a more negative way. And as we get better at understanding how we help people who have complexities and issues that are not great, homelessness is one of those issues as well, that um, we, we definitely are investing in those things and we're making differences every day. Are we, are we making ground? Are we keeping up with the opioid crisis? Because it seemed for the longest time that we were falling behind on this. Yeah. Are, are we keeping up? Uh, obviously, we're not eradicating yet, but are no. we at least getting a handle on this? I, I think that there's been a number of positive things that have happened that make me feel more optimistic. Mm-hmm. One of them is that people are sticking around when a buddy is having a poison oh, no. because they know they can do that because of the protection. Yep. Yep. So they're staying with that person until EMS gets there. We have more EMS visits to our emergency departments because of opiate poisonings. And I r- do refer to them as a poisoning as opposed to an overdose. And I think that, um, you know, we have not turned the corner by any stretch, but I think that there's more awareness. And with more awareness and more understanding, less stigma, there is a chance that uh, we will not be Vancouver. Are you worried more about the prescription side of this or the street drug side of this where you don't know what the heck you're getting? This, definitely the street side. There's, yeah. there's a lot of entrepreneurial activity going on with that. It Can we get a handle on that? Well, it seems amazing to me that if I was an entrepreneur, that I would be giving something to somebody who may, might kill them, yeah. and therefore they wouldn't be returning. Exactly. Not to a lot of repeat again. clients, yeah. No, and that's, uh, that doesn't make any sense to me why that would occur. Hmm. Uh, someone once told me that there is an endless supply of customers, and that's why you don't need to be worried about that. But. Yeah. My. Uh, but you feel like you are making a dent. I know that we're making a difference in the people that we get to work with. So those who make a choice to, to change and, and get involved with services, we absolutely are making That's a difference. That's the key phrase right there, though, the people that make the choice to get the help. Because mm-hmm. talking about it and actually opening that door, making that first step, that's the most difficult thing, isn't it? Yeah. A- and we are there 24-7. If people want to find out more, uh, where can we go? So they can call us 24 hours, seven days a week. First time, you don't have to give us your name if you don't want to do that. So Men's Addiction Service is 905-527-9264. Womankind, again, 24 hours, 905-545-9100. Debbie Bang has been with us, Manager, Womankind Addiction Services, Men Addiction Services, Hamilton, and the Eating Disorder Program, St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton. Debbie, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.